Well, hi, women in the Word. So good to see everybody. Thank you for loving God so much. Thank you for loving each other so much. That's why you're here. I'm Lynn Kitchens, part of the teaching team. In this week's study, we saw some pretty hard things, things that happened to David that he had to face. But we also met some pretty amazing people, mighty people, and uh, they did some mighty things. They made me think of my grandson, Miles, who just turned three last month. Here's a slide of him. I wish you could see his cute face. He sees himself as a mighty man, too. He wears a superhero cape just about everywhere he goes. And I guess in this picture, like he had just flown into the sky and grabbed a plane and came back down to play with it on Earth. Uh, Miles tells us he is strong and he is brave, and his superhero cape proves it. And this weekend, we were in a car together, and it was me and his aunt and a couple of his cousins, and all of a sudden, we hear his little voice from the car seat yell out, Hey, guys, guys, I will always be here for you, all of you, always. <laughs> we were like, okay. He is a hero. Miles is not the only one who wears a superhero cape. We wear one too. If you're a follower of Christ, you wear one of those. On the day you said yes to Jesus, and then he put a superhero cape on you because you became one of the mighty people of God. That is your calling. We walk on this planet to help others in need, And there's a special focus we are supposed to have on each other, believers that are in the faith. And when I say that, can't you just immediately picture some people who almost had a cape on and just would swoop into things in your life to strengthen you, pray for you, help you, and encourage you in your faith? Look at Galatians 6.10 on your verse sheet. It says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And look at the top of your outline. Here's our marching orders. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. When we come to Christ, we begin to learn, oh, it's not all about me. And it's not all about the hokey pokey either. It's about stretching our muscles for each other to continue strong walks in God. It's about serving each other. It's about being the hands and the feet of Jesus in each other's lives. That's the plan. We are the mighty people of God, and we should be helping each other. In our study, we saw many of the mighty people of God that were in David's life. They surrounded him, and by their words and their actions, they were saying to David, hey, we will be here for you always. That's what we need to be saying to each other. You know, David did not get to the throne all by himself. God provided his power, but God also provided his people to assist him in his role as God's chosen king. 
In chapter 23, we were specifically reminded of David's mighty men. They fought physical battles for David for lots and lots of years. And isn't it interesting that that list in chapter 23 comes right after this poetic memories of David about all that God had done for him from the time he was young all through his kingship. And I think this list of the mighty men was put right after that on purpose to be a nod to the men who helped him get there, who helped him stay there, who protected him, who loved him and served him for so many years. Because, you know, truthfully, when we think about it, how many battles did they have to face? Like he was in constant battles from when he was just a young man running around in the wilderness trying to get away from Saul all the way until his last breath, Israel was in battle after battle after battle. And these mighty men were an incredible part of every victory that occurred with Israel. So David's 37 mighty men supported David on his difficult journey from a pasture all the way to a palace. They kept their capes on for David. They're called the 30 in this chapter, which, where is my Bible? Over there. Would someone jump up on that chair and get it? I'm so sorry. They are called the 30 in this chapter. This was a term they used for a military group. Usually a small military group was about 30 men, but uh, it looked more like 37. Thank you for David. So these mighty men, they aligned their hearts with David. They stayed true to him and his calling. They helped him become king, and then they helped him remain king. And first we met in chapter 23, the three chief men. These were the men that were in David's immediate service. And the chief of them all was Joshab Bashibeth. And when I get to heaven, he can tell me how to really say his name. He was the most distinguished of the king's guard. It says he wielded his spear and killed 800 soldiers at one time. If you go into Chronicles 11, it says he killed 300 soldiers. So most people believe this is a scribal era because 300 and 800 was very similar to right. So don't be too impressed with Joshua because it was only 300 men killed with the spear. We We can't know exactly what that means. It could be that he led and began a battle and was responsible with his spear and others of the killing of 300 enemy soldiers. Then we met Eliezer. He was famous for striking down the Philistines and for doing it for so long with his sword that his hand was frozen to the handle because he had held onto it for so long. I actually read about a sergeant in the Battle of Waterloo who had one of those basket weave handles, and he held on to it during that battle all day long, and they actually had to call a blacksmith to get his hand off the handle because the blood and was sort of like glue, and his hand was frozen to the sword. So that's what happened here to Eliezer. The third of the chief men was named Shama, and his story is about being on a plot of land that had lentils, 
And all of Israel fled when the Philistines showed up, but not him. He stayed, he battled, he fought to keep that plot of lentils, and he succeeded. And we have to think, why defend a a plot of lentils? Well, think about it. If you were in battles constantly and you were out in the wilderness or whatever, you were looking for things to eat, all these soldiers. So probably this was an area that the Israelites would be eating from, uh, these lentils. And it was an enemy's uh, battle strategy back then to find out what are their food sources, let's get rid of them. So that could have been happening here. But secondly, it could have just been that uh, Shama was thinking, God gave us this land. You don't have any right to it. And he just battled and battled to keep that land. So these three men seem pretty superhuman, but we can see their secret when we look at chapter 23, verse 10. It says at the bottom of verse 10, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And let's look at verse 12. At the end of that verse, and the Lord worked a great victory. That was a secret. These men were strong, but God gave them the strength. The victories came from God. The victories were his. Okay, let's look at three more unnamed mighty men. Uh, Look at verse 14. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Okay, so in this story, this was either early on when David was fleeing from Saul or right after he became king, he was fleeing from the Philistines because they didn't want him to be king. This could have happened at those times. He was probably very thirsty. He was dreaming about his boyhood in Bethlehem. And maybe he played by the gate at Bethlehem and he could remember the taste of that water in Bethlehem. And we were talking this morning, you know, some well water tastes different than others. You know, my parents lived in rural Michigan, and their water was just delicious. So that is what David is dreaming about. They traveled 12 miles to get that water. They had to break through the enemy lines. They risked their lives. They brought that water back to David. But when David looked down into the water, he saw the blood the blood that could have been theirs because of the great sacrifice they were making for him. And he felt unworthy of that. And so that moment, David turned a cave into a temple. He had watched the priest do this in the tabernacle. He poured the water out as a drink offering to the Lord. And who was watching him when he did that? Don't you know all those other soldiers were thinking, is David going to drink that water? What is David going to do? If he had taken a sip of that water, it may have communicated to all the men, 
Our lives are not of any value to David. It might have cheapened the brave act of these men. So this story tells us so much about the love and the appreciation that existed between David and his mighty men. The lengths that those mighty men were willing to go for David attested to his great caring leadership, and we see that in this story. And this was the result. David's men were outstanding warriors. They were also outstanding encouragers in David's life and the calling that God gave him. So God was the foundation of David's kingship, but the mighty men kept David's king strong, both in battles and in his heart, in his spirit. In this chapter, we also learn about the chief of the 30, which was Joab's brother. We all know Joab, Joab's brother Abishai. We've seen him. He was the most renowned of the 30. He stayed loyal during Absalom's um, revolt and rebellion against David. But sometimes Abishai had a little more zeal than he did wisdom. That one time that they snuck into, into Saul's camp, first thing Abishai said was, let's kill Saul. And David said, no. And then later, when, uh, remember, Shimei is cursing David when Absalom's chasing him, and it's Abishai who says, let's kill Shimei. <laughs> this is his zeal that he has that doesn't always have wisdom. But we also saw, just I think last week, how Abishai was the one who came to David's rescue when a giant was about to kill him. Okay, another renowned of the 30, Benaiah, he was in charge of David's bodyguards. He was famous for killing a lion in a snowy pit and killing an Egyptian. And I thought, what two random, <laughs> random things those are, a lion in a snowy pit, and he killed an Egyptian. Okay, we learn in Chronicles that Egyptian was seven and a half feet tall. So that changes the story a little bit. He was handsome, but he was also tall. After David's death, Benaiah would become King Solomon's commander. And here's a spoiler alert. First, he had to kill Joab because Joab did not support King Solomon as king. He was not for Solomon to be king. So you have to read on if you want to see that story. Chapter 23 ends with a list of the rest of his mighty men, but we have to catch our breath when we read that last name on the list, Uriah. Uriah, we all know that name. And looking at him last, I wonder if the writer did this on purpose to remind us of David's great sin with Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife. Uriah wasn't just any man that David killed, which would have been wrong in any way, but he was even one of David's loyal, mighty men. David had him killed so he could have his wife. We are reminded of David's sin here and maybe to prepare us for David's sin in the beginning of this next chapter. So when believers face battles, what do we do? We all have battles. We all have trials. We have hurts, fears, times when we're not seeking God. We wear capes 
to help those people. So how do we do that? And I think these mighty men gave us some good clues on how to do that for each other. So I really don't know what could encourage a hurting heart more than to remind someone of their calling from God. To remind someone, look at what God's done in your life. Look how God used you in this. Look what God will do for you. Look at the future plans that he has for you. Your ministry, these are your talents. Look at the fruit he's produced that surrounds you. And I bet David had days where he wondered about his calling as well, and some of these mighty men spoke up about these very things. You know, think about last week when David was in that battle with the giants, and he realized he was weak. He was really too old to be fighting them. So his men remind him of his calling. And they say to him, you cannot come to battle with us anymore because the lamp of Israel would be extinguished. And their point is, Israel's hope was tied to David and God's promises to him. His calling was their blessing. So they're basically saying, what would we do without you? What would we do? What an encouragement for David to be reminded, oh yes, I have a calling from God. Look at Philippians 1.6. Here's a verse we can share with people when they've lost their way about their calling. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Another thing we can do is patiently support them on their journey to maturity. We um, know that David had some maturity at a lot of Growing up, he needed to do, getting from the pasture to the palace. They all could have bailed on him as they watched him make mistakes and show lack of wisdom, but they did not. And I thought about, remember Abigail? She was actually one of the mighty people in David's life as he was getting to the throne. In his immaturity and anger, he decided he was going to kill Abigail's husband and all his men on his estate because he was mad. They didn't help David when he was in the wilderness. It was Abigail that fell to the ground in front of him and begged him not to and told him why that would be a big mistake. And when she was done, David looked at her and said, thank you. And then he looked at God and said, thank you for sending her. I would have shed innocent blood. She was a mighty person for him. Because sometimes in our battles, that's when we behave the least mature. Our perspectives are not good. Maybe our prayers are not strong, and we lose sight of what's true. And I thought, where would we all be if others gave up on us on our journey to maturity? Even now, as we're still growing in maturity, where would we be? It reminded me, did any of you wear that button in school or carry something around? Please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. We had all those initials on a button that we wore. And I thought, you know, David was probably wearing that button. (laughs) He had a lot on his plate. His calling was huge. People stayed loyal to him. We need to do that. And then we serve people from our heart. 
not out of obligation. These men who knew David wanted to drink this water, they weren't obligated to do that. They were motivated by their true care and compassion to serve David because of that reason. Our sacrificial service to others should be an action that demonstrates true love, sincere love and care. I don't know if some of you saw this on the news the other day. It was also on Instagram where that man had, was in a battle of his life because he was battling for his life. He needed a kidney. And he's at home, and one day he gets the call, we have a kidney for you. Come to the hospital. We'll get you all set up. Uh, something's been donated for you. And so he goes. And, and then in the video, they show you after the surgery, and he's in his room. And he's just sitting there, and all of a sudden, slowly coming into his room is his daughter in a robe, hospital robe, who has donated her kidney and not told him she was going to do that. And his reaction was so incredible. He just stares. It takes him a while for it to compute. And then he just starts crying because he cannot believe the sacrifice that she made out of her love for her father. When we serve others, it should be so kind that it's surprising. And then it should take our thoughts to God like it did to David every time. What about when our brothers and sisters in Christ are weak and it leads to sin? Let's look at that, 24 verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, number the people, that I may know the number of the people. Now, do you see God's name in there anywhere? Usually God would say, Hey, I want you to take a census about this or that. In the past, for other people, he's, he's not involved here. This probably happened late in David's reign. And it says, God's angry with Israel. We don't really know why for sure. And then it says here, God incited David to take a census or number Israel. But Chronicles 21 tells us Satan moved David to take the census and number Israel. So here's what we need to realize to make sense out of this. God is always sovereign. Sometimes God allows Satan to do things in order to accomplish his purposes. And that's what's going on here. Satan tempted David to take a census. God allowed that temptation, but neither Satan nor God forced David to sin in this situation. It was his choice. And a census in itself isn't a wrong thing, but here's why David's doing the sentence. He wants to number the men eligible for, for um, military needs. And when he did that, that census brought David's pride in the great strength of his army to the surface. That was, is what was going on here. He was probably putting more trust in his forces than in God at this time, probably focusing and magnifying his own achievements 
not so much about glorifying God. And so God also used this sentence to discipline Israel for this unknown sin that we read about in the verse. And I wondered if, like David, maybe Israel had fallen into some similar sins, just sins of uh, self-sufficiency. And here's what can shed some light on that. Look back again at 24, verse 1. It starts by saying, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You won't see that phrase anywhere in the book of Samuel except one other place than this. It was when David and his people were bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel and against Uzzah. Uzzah, who was helping bring in the ark, suddenly died because he was touching that ark irreverently. And maybe this was David right now. And maybe this was Israel right now, being careless about the word of God, being careless about the commands of God, and taking matters into their own hands instead of his. And so Joab is going to intervene here. He's one of the mighty people of God in David's life. He has some words of wisdom for David. Look at verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Okay, the fact, the very fact that Joab protests so strongly lets us know this is wrong. This is not what God would have, and Joab knows it. And so he is not afraid to bring that to light. He thinks David's motives are wrong. He reminds David by speaking the name of God immediately. Did you notice that? And he says, hey, God's always been responsible for our military. God's always provided to us. Why are you leaving God out of this picture? Why would you delight in such a thing as counting soldiers? I thought that the word delight tells us a lot. He's not just interested in the army. He's excited about the number of his army. He's dwelling on the number of his army. He's proud about the number of his army. That's what the word delight would mean. This is a sin. Joab knew it. And more of his words are recorded in Chronicles, so let's look at that. First Chronicles 21.3, but Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Joab saw the sin in David's command, and he is reminding David that, God was Israel's strength, not numbers. But David seems to be shifting his trust from God to his military power. And you know, who once wrote about the danger of that? David. Let's look at Psalm 20. He wrote, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
Look at Psalm 44. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you've saved us from our foes. You have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. God didn't listen to Joab's wisdom. He was boasting in other things. And so Joab had to obey his command and go from Dan to Beersheba. That was a phrase they would say, which would mean all of Israel. David wanted to know the number of men that would be eligible to join the military, men that were 20 years old and up. It took Joab and his people nine months to accomplish this. The number was over a million. But they may have used past census numbers to number two tribes, the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Benjamin. Because Chronicles tells us Joab refused to number them because at this point, he said David's command was abhorrent to him. And he wouldn't do it. So what do others do when those around us are spiritually weak, they're making bad choices, they are blind to their sin. Here's what we can learn from Joab. First, boldly bring God into the picture, like Joab did. First thing he said to David. When people are pursuing sinful things, God is the last thing they want to think about. It makes them uncomfortable. We can bring God up, though. We can remind them of what God has done and said and what his commands are. We can do that with a respectful, sincere heart, and that can be a great warning for our friend who's in sin. We can talk about God's past faithfulness, his future faithfulness, his will for their lives, and his holiness. And then we can ask them questions to cause them to consider their motives. I love it that that's what Joab did. Now tell me why you delight in this thing. Do you think David answered that? I don't think he did. Questions expose true motives. And hopefully if we ask the right questions, maybe we can change our friend's heart from making poor choices. I had a friend yesterday that was telling me about her husband has been the mighty person in her life that has asked questions every time she's about to do something that's not real smart. And she was telling us about she was real mad at this person, and she was going over, here's what I'm going to say to her, and I'm going to say this, this, and this, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to call her right now, and I'm going to say these things to her. And she headed over for the phone, and her husband stopped and said, now, are you calling her for her sake or for your sake? And she sat there while put the phone down, <laughs> realized her motives were not good. Questions expose true motives. Okay, then we have to call sin a sin. Have you ever been with people that are laughing about something that's actually a sin or making light of something that's actually a sin? They make excuses. They call it something else. It is hard for us as friends or someone who's walked with someone a long time to not just give a polite laugh and not say anything. It's hard for us sometimes to push against that. But we are a mighty people of God. Our calling is 
to not join them on making light of sin, but to call sin a sin. We have to fight for truth because we care about the person. Along with that, make that person aware that personal sin becomes others' pain. You know, Joab did that. In Chronicles, we just read that one of his last words to David was, your sin will bring guilt on all Israel. We need to remind people that. Your personal sin is going to result in pain, usually for some of the people that you love the most. Sin is not isolated. It hurts more people than the person sinning, and people that are in a weak place need to be reminded of that. Okay, what about the consequences? Look at verse 10. After the census is over, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. I'll love this about David. This is what separated him from so many kings later from so many people in leadership, he confesses, he acknowledges his sin, he calls it what it was, it was foolish. Do you remember when Samuel came to King Saul before David was king, and King Saul had just sinned? And Samuel tells him, hey, you just sinned. And all Saul would do was make excuse after excuse. He did not call sin, sin thought this was interesting. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he confessed. He said, I have sinned. But when he confesses his sin here, he says, I have sinned greatly. His sin with Bathsheba was a sin of the flesh, a sin of the body. But the census was a sin of David's spirit and attitude towards God. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. Or 2 Corinthians, I'm not sure. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. David recognizes sin was rebellion against God, and he sought for God's forgiveness. It's like David forgot God could bring Israel victory with many People, with many soldiers, or with few. Someone mentioned in our leadership meeting this morning, David must have forgot it only took one stone to slay Goliath when he came to him in the name of the Lord. I thought about Jonathan, Saul's son, who was David's mighty person in David's life, what he said in a battle many years earlier. Look at 1 Samuel on your verse sheet. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, they're about to go into a battle, come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That is faith. As David was seeking God, God was speaking to the prophet Gad about David. Now, Gad is another mighty person in David's life. Remember, Samuel was that person. When Samuel died, 
Gad took his place. So all through David's kingship, Gad was a mighty person for him. And right now, God is telling him what to say to David. David was offered by God to choose famine or foe or pestilence as a consequence of his sin and to purge out evil. Gad was sent as he faced those consequences, and David would choose pestilence, and 70,000 Israelites would die because of that. Let's look at verse 14. And David said to Gad when he had to choose, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. The plague started the day after this choice was made, and God is, David is just really going to hope in God's mercy here. The judgment ended three days later in Jerusalem, and guess where it ended? at the very place where Joab ended his counting and numbering the people of Israel. I just think God's making a point by doing that. God's mercy did stop the angel. He is now um, hovering over Jerusalem, but not destroying Jerusalem. And God allowed David to witness the consequences of his sin, the judgment, the judgment of God in the form of an angel is hovering over Jerusalem. And can you imagine what that felt like to look at that? To recognize the pain your sin has caused and just beg for mercy, David did, when he saw that. And we realize from what he says in Chronicles, he would have died for the people of Israel. They were his sheep. Look on your view sheet at 1 Chronicles 21. David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword was stretched out over Jerusalem. And David and the elders together, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces, and David said to God, Wasn't it I who gave command to number the people? It's I who sinned. I have done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let, let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But don't let the plague be on your people. You can envision David on the ground, the elders next to him, their misery, the dust on their face, wearing sackcloth. And right at that time, God sent his servant Gad to David, to bring him hope and direction. Look at verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord had commanded. David quickly obeyed. And Chronicles tells us that Arana was on his threshing floor working away now, a threshing floor was a big, big circle. It had a stone surface, any kind of hard surface, tiles, whatever. And they would throw stalks of grain on it. 
and then they would bring up oxen or mules or other animals, and they would just trample all these stalks. Sometimes they would attach a threshing board to the back of an animal, and they would just walk in a circle, and that board would sort of crush those stalks. And then they would take their winnowing fork and throw all this up in the air, and the wind would take the chaff away, and the good grain would drop back to the ground. It was time for David's sin to be removed like chaff, taken away, and goodness to be restored back to Israel. Aaron and I had two shocks that day. He's on his threshing floor. He looks up. There's a judgment angel with the sword hovering over his threshing floor. That had to be scary. It said his four sons looked up and ran and took kids somewhere. And then he looked down from the threshing floor, and he sees King David coming towards him with these officials. And so he just jumps off the threshing floor, runs down. It was a big day for him. Kneels with his face to the ground to the king. When he hears what they need, he wants to freely give David his land and supplies so he can build an altar to the Lord there. But David understands this, that grace and mercy are free to the repentant, but sacrifice is involved in true worship. David wants to pay for this land because of that. And then he built an altar on the very land where Abraham had built an altar to offer his own son Isaac to the Lord many, many years before. The Lord accepted David's sacrificial offerings and the plague departed from Israel. And then Chronicles tells us David was like, this is where we'll build the house of the Lord. Always in the back of David's mind was, when are we going to have a temple for God? And God said, your son Solomon will do that. But David immediately begins to gather materials so Solomon will be able to do that on this very spot. In this place where an angel of death hovered became the place of God's holy temple. With God, Good things can be built on top of bad things. Good things can be built on top of bad things. The consequences we suffer, God can bring good things out of it. How can we encourage others with this very truth? When our friends and other believers face consequences, do what Gad did, he allowed God to communicate with him about David's consequence. Seek God on behalf of those who are suffering because of their sin. Seek God and ask, what can I do? Listen to what God tells you. How can I encourage them? What would be wrong of us to do would be to be happy about their suffering, to be satisfied that they're suffering and just leave it there. We have to care about it. We're a mighty person of God that God can use in the consequences that they're suffering. We can also offer hope in their distress. When David was literally looking at his sin, hovering over Jerusalem by watching that angel who had been punishing others, and his heart was breaking, 
That's the very day Gad came to him and said, go to Aaron's threshing floor. This was a gift of hope he brought David. There's something you can do before the Lord. What a gift for him. He's telling him, there will be an end to your suffering. When our friend sees there's going to be no end to my suffering, when they are as low as they could go, like David lying on the ground, we can bring them the gift of hope by reminding them that God does hear their pleas, that God does care, that God does have new plans of mercy and can build something good again in their life. When you think about it, David had two great sins we know about. The first one was with Bathsheba. The second was the census of Israel. And God's grace, the first sin, brought about the birth of Solomon, who had become king. In God's grace, the second sin brought about the holy temple site that would be built by Solomon. Romans 5 tells us this, which is true here. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace of God abounds all the more. We can trust in his mercy and his grace. That's the greatest hope we can have to pass along to others. It's the best gift. I read a song about it that said this, the joy of the desolate, light of the straying, hope of the penitent, lasting and pure, hearing our comforter, Tenderly saying, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. We could share that with those that hurt. And finally, we can guide them to better spiritual places. Gad's words to David not only gave him hope, but he pointed him in a different direction, the direction of Mount Moriah, just outside of the Jerusalem wall, This became the place of joy and hope in David's life because this is where the temple would be built. So the person facing consequences needs us to be a guide to restore them and point to better places. Because guess what? People in sin have been in bad places emotionally, in their thoughts, and in what they do, in their habits. When we care, we can point them to better places. Come to the study group. Come and let us pray for you. Come here for some good fellowship. Here's the key verse for the mighty people of God. Look at Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others In God's power, we can help each other because we are the mighty people of God and we wear superhero capes. Even if we don't see them, God sees them. God's with us. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you that you put these people in our lives. And I just pray that you would um, encourage us to be these kind of mighty people in other believers' lives who need help. Lord, we thank you that you don't ever leave us. You never give up on us. You have a plan for us because you are merciful, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.